Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody. Glad you're here today. All right. It's kind of fun to not be up on the mic until now. <laughs> it's so unique. I, I like it. So thank you. Thank you, Keith, for leading us. It's always wonderful. All right. So um, this morning is our last teaching in the series we've been doing uh, in recent months called Activated Faith, a series in which we've been taking a look at a few of the enigmatic parables of Jesus that he told to activate his listeners, to provoke meaningful responses in them, to get them active. And as you might remember, one of my favorite go-to teachers on the parables is a Jewish New Testament scholar named Amy Jill, or, or she generally goes by A.J. Levine. And as I was doing some research on this week's teaching, I discovered that in addition to having a lot of super smart scholarship and fascinating insights on Jesus and on the stories he teaches with, A.J. Levine herself actually writes a pretty good teaching story. So today, we're going to start things off by listening to a bit of a kind of original parable, uh, a, a parable kind of story by A.J. Levine. So we'll be watching a bit of a video. What then happens regarding the final judgment? And what do we do about this? <clears throat> when it comes to what happens to us after we die, I am not yet clued in and do not want to be for quite a while. <laughs> but here's how I imagine things. So far, I've been talking about history for a final comment, this I made up. After a very, very long and happy life I die, I find myself at the pearly gates. Two things to know about the pearly gates. First, the word for pearl in Greek is margarita, so you can work with this. <clears throat> and second, the pearly gates are wide open because I don't think heaven is a gated community. Standing at the pearly gates of St. Peter, you can tell he's Peter because he's got a little rock insignia. It's a little bit of Bible humor because Peter really means rocky. It's a nickname. And Peter says to me, AJ, welcome to heaven. You can get your harp and your halo here and your wings and your slippers at the next table. And I said, Peter, wait, I have questions. Like, can you speak Greek? And what happened to your wife? And who won the food fight that you had with Paul in Antioch? And where did you wander off to at the end of the book of Acts? And Peter says, look, lady, I'm on duty now. Pick up your accessories and we'll talk after dinner. It's fabulous. Standing behind me is a fellow who, in his earlier life, was a television evangelist. You can tell his hair is perfect. His teeth are perfect. His pants have a crease. You could get a paper cut if you touched them. Perfect. And he has managed to find in the heavenly anteroom a copy of a King James version of the Bible with the words of Jesus written in red letters. He also could have found a copy of the Jewish Publication Society version of the Tanakh, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Bhagavad Gita, the complete works of Mary Baker Eddy, and a variety of other religious texts, because this is my image of heaven. And he says to Peter, excuse me, Peter, I don't mean to make trouble my first day in heaven. But did not our Lord and Savior say right here in the Gospel of John in red letters that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And how is it that this Jew, he points at me, is getting in? And Peter says, Eugewalt. <laughs> Wait here. All right, we're going to leave it there for now. 
I promise we'll get back to hearing the rest of her little story. Um, you can hear where it goes from there. I started things off with AJ's story, um, not just because it's amusing, which it is, um, but also because it's connected to the story we're gonna explore today. Our story for today is arguably one of the most famous and familiar parables in the New Testament, but it's also one that I think probably merits a fresh view, particularly for those of us who may have studied it in the context of more evangelical spaces. It's a story that, as you'll see, has a framing that connects with AJ's, but might feel more challenging for us, depending on our background. But as we end this series of conversations on how Jesus might call us to grow as a Haven community in action together, I think this story seems to me like an important part of the conversation. So before we look at our parable, I want to give you some setup for the story we're going to consider today. This parable is found in the Gospel of Matthew. As you may know, Matthew devotes a lot of attention to the teachings of Jesus. That's a big chunk of his gospel. And the gospel writer arranges all of the teachings of Jesus that he features in five big chunks, sometimes called the five discourses by biblical scholars. And the discourses are interspersed within the greater narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. So the first discourse you probably are familiar with, it kicks off Jesus' teaching in Matthew, and we call it often the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, Jesus starts. Well, the fifth and final discourse takes place right before the Passion narratives, the story of Jesus's trial, execution, all of that. Right before Jesus predicts, he's about to be crucified, and then half a chapter later, he is arrested. So each of the discourses, as Matthew has arranged them, seems to have a theme, and this final one is a series of parables that all speak to questions about where everything is going. I called this teaching a future story. It's all about some future event. Where is this whole life drama headed? Questions that are forward-focused. What Bible scholars call eschatology. That's the big word. Which means literally the study of last things. The study of the end, of the last things. So AJ was telling an eschatology kind of parable, okay? And Jesus had plenty of his own. The eschatology discourse starts off at the beginning of Matthew 24. Jesus is headed out of the temple. He's been worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and his disciples are there with him, and they're marveling at the building. And then Jesus makes this eerie prophetic comment. Do you see all these things? Meaning the, this temple around them and the, 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 the walls, etc. I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. This, of course, would come to pass about 30 to 40 years later when the Romans would tear down that very temple. But Jesus' friends, of course, didn't know that. A bit later, they came to him when they were alone, hanging out outside of the city on the Mount of Olives. And they asked, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking these forward-looking, eschatological questions. And Jesus starts telling stories. He tells a number of parables, 
in, in Matthew, all connected with some sort of future justice setting event. And the discourse reaches its climax, along with what you could say is the climax of all of Jesus' teachings as it's presented in Matthew with our parable. Okay, so we're going to take a look at that text, starting at verse 31 of Matthew, chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate people, one from another, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not receive me as a guest, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not give you whatever you needed? Then he will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will depart into eternal punishment, but the righteousness, righteous into eternal life. Okay. So I don't know about you, but for me, this is a passage that I both kind of love and also feel kind of troubled by, <laughs> right? And I think in some ways that might be some of Jesus's intention, right? that there is some of that baked in. But it's also real that compounding the troubling is that we're reading this story more than two millennia after it was originally shared from a very different cultural experience than the original audience and with, frankly, a lot of baggage that's been attached to it through the centuries. So I'd like to try to wade through some of that today. And to start, I think it makes sense to address head on like the elephant in the passage, <laughs> that this is a judgment text. Of course, it's not the only one in the New Testament. Matthew 25 is one of a number of texts that talk about a future judgment and about some sort of cosmic punishment, as well as cosmic reward. It's particularly a recurring theme in Matthew, who seems to talk about divine judgment more than any other gospel writer. Most of the texts, when we think about judgment, uh, a lot there in Matthew. And I want to acknowledge that for some of us, these judgment texts might feel really challenging to encounter, maybe even triggering 
particularly for those of us who have spent a lot of time in conservative Christian kind of spaces where the fear of judgment has been a major theme. So I've known Christians who were raised with a lot of fire and brimstone kind of preaching that experienced genuine childhood trauma as they shook in their beds at night, fearing the fires of hell. And as a spiritual community, Haven's a place that values creating safety and honoring diversity and centering on Jesus. And we seek to be a place of refuge, particularly for folks who are trying to recover from toxic Christian spaces that have caused harm. And because that's true, I think we have to name that the doctrine of hell and the way some Christians have used it has caused a lot of psychological harm. That's just true. So what do we do with passages like Matthew 25, other than just avoid preaching on them, which if I'm going to be honest, is often my go-to. <laughs> One thing I think might be helpful in encountering texts like these is to better understand the cultural setting in which a parable like this is being shared. So Dr. Megan Henning is a religion professor and a scholar who's done a lot of work around the development of the concept of the afterlife and particularly the concept of hell in the ancient world. How that concept developed across um, cultures and how it functioned in the ancient world. So in a lecture she gave online recently, Dr. Henning described the way that different cultures developed their frameworks for what comes after life from Egyptians talking in their Book of the Dead, to the Greco-Romans in the works of like, um, you know, their talks about Hades, uh, to ancient Israelites, to Jews in the time of Jesus. Ancient Israelites initially had a concept called Sheol, but as we see in the Hebrew Bible and some of the more prophetic texts, um, the more what's called apocalyptic texts like Daniel and Ezekiel, by the end of the biblical, of the Hebrew Bible era, they were beginning also to have a concept of, um, of a more fiery punishment, that that was coming. So by the time Jesus came along on the first century, across cultures in the ancient world, a tradition had developed of talking about the afterlife and using that as a way of teaching how to live ethically in this life. And it was found to be a powerful teaching device. We see this in the Greek Odyssey. We see it in the Roman poem, the, the Enid. And, and we can see it again in, in some of those apocalyptic texts um, that I mentioned, but there were also a lot of Jewish apocalyptic texts that didn't make it into our Bible, but that followers of Jesus or people who were Jesus was speaking to would have been familiar with, Jewish apocalyptic texts. How did people hold their understanding of, of these concepts? Well, tellingly, one of the most learned Greco-Roman philosophers of the day, so this is a, a Greek, um, came, his name was Strabo, and he wrote in his work, kind of an analyzing, he was a philosopher, a geographer, um, and in his work about the Hades myth, as he was speaking of the Hades myth, which was the Greco-Roman version, um, he, he named that people were debating whether it was true. Is there a real Hades or whether or not? For him, it didn't matter 
What was important, he said, was the usefulness of talking about Hades and instructing our children. Does that make sense? So even then, there's a sense in first century thinkers, at least the ones who are trying to teach ethics, that using the concept of consequences in a coming life is an important teaching tool in helping folks understand how to live now. So the people to whom Jesus is speaking have this understanding of the world baked in that includes some sort of coming reckoning in the next life. In much of Judaism at the time, future punishment is often already being associated with fire. That's not something Jesus is imparting. It's something his audience is assuming. Dr. Henning explains the implications of that this way. People will ask me, do I think that hell exists? And my question is, I don't know. My texts don't have that question. My texts don't have that question. Ancient texts don't have that question. That's a post-enlightenment question that we ask of ancient texts that's unfair because it's not a question they had. For ancient thinkers, she says, the question is not, does hell exist? The question is, who's there and why are they there? Does that make sense? The question for Jesus' audience is, who's there and why are they there? And that's a framework I think it's helpful to at least keep in mind as we encounter a text like Matthew 25. Another thing I will name, I think it might be helpful to remember, is this is a parable. <laughs> As we've seen before, parables are naturally evocative in their imagery. They use strong visual pictures to make a point to the audience that is listening. There's exaggeration, there's hyperbole, there's metaphor baked in. Do we think that A.J. Levine actually expects to meet somebody with the rock insignia on his lapel at a pearly gate? I don't think that's the point of what she's saying, right? It's a parable. Finally, I want to speak a word about this language that we have in the end of the parable. Um, eternal judgment, eternal life, eternal fire. <laughs> Through the centuries, there have been Christians who have pointed to that language in this parable and have used it to run with a doctrine of hell that I think has been particularly problematic. One that has come to be known uh, to some as eternal conscious torment as the understanding of what hell, what constitutes hell, eternal conscious torment. Now, while there are other views of how people might be judged, this view, it must be said, has been predominant. So does this passage argue that whatever punitive consequence might exist in some sort of cosmic judgment, that that is necessarily everlasting, that it will go forever, just as the reward of the righteous will also go forever. Well, unfortunately, our English translations get in the way of us here. The Greek word that's being used and translated, and we have this on a slide, um, being used and translated as eternal in this passage is actually ionios or ionion. And it means literally of the age, of the age. That means it's connected to another era, another eon, another age, the age to come, the cosmic age. It does not actually mean everlasting. There was another Greek word, we have that, athanatos. That means that which doesn't die, that which is unending, that which is everlasting. That's not the word 
that's being used here. Frankly, while athanatos does occasionally appear in the New Testament in connection to some future life, some future reward, it is never connected in the whole New Testament with the concept of any future punishment. While Ionios can certainly have connections to the eternal, it's really the language Jesus is using is not about duration, it's about the source. He's describing something that's coming from a place that's outside of time and place, a realm that's beyond us, the realm of the divine. So Ionian judgment is only eternal in the sense that it comes from a place beyond time, not that the judgment itself lasts forever. Does that make sense? I think that's helpful to know. All right. With all that background acknowledged <laughs> and held in mind, what's actually happening in this story? What's Jesus trying to provoke using this convention of teaching eschatology in his day? Well, the story starts with this setting that actually comes straight from the book of Daniel. This is a picture that Jesus is clearly pulling from Daniel, an apocalyptic messianic figure called the Son of Man on a throne. And before the Son of Man, all the nations are gathered, and all people are there, and the Son of Man, who is also in this picture both a shepherd and a king, proceeds to sort them. Now, I can imagine Jesus' audience might have had a certain sense about how this sorting is going to go. Because in other apocalyptic literature, sheep represent the Jewish people. So perhaps Jesus' listeners might expect that the sorting and punishing that's coming will mean the downfall of Rome and the separating of Israel, of the Jewish people, from their oppressive neighbors. But it turns out this dividing isn't along ethnic lines. It's not along religious lines. This is not a tribalistic kind of grouping. I'll point out there's also no discussion of belief no confessions of faith. The sheep aren't being rewarded for having the right ideas about the divine, for praying the right prayers, confessing the correct faith, or having the right theology doesn't seem to be what makes a sheep a sheep. No, amongst all the nations in this parable, what distinguishes those who are called sheep from those who are called goats? It seems to be all about the actions they have taken in their lives, and specifically the actions of caring for the vulnerable. These actions are repeated four times, the whole list, four times, which I think is meant to tell us something. Jesus really wants us to focus on these actions being named, giving food to the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, inviting in the stranger, giving clothes to the naked, visiting the imprisoned. A little background on that last one. In Jesus' day, people who were imprisoned were generally awaiting trial. They were not being incarcerated long-term. That was not kind of a, a, a sentence a, a, that was doled out. Eventually, they were likely to either be executed or sent to a penal work colony. In the meantime, they were in prison, and that could be years, where they languished in often cold, dark spaces. Their provisions were generally meager, may not have been enough, for them to survive on. Roman soldiers weren't particularly motivated to keep the imprisoned well enough to actually see trial. There are stories of them at times encouraging suicide amongst their prisoners. 
just to clear out some space. So folks who did survive incarceration were generally reliant on the gifts of outsiders to stay alive. Family or friends who could bring them food and water and other necessary items while they awaited their eventual time in court. But this kind of service wasn't without risk. There, were always, there was always the chance that the Romans might not look too kindly on the assistance provided the prisoner and decide to arrest the assist sister too. So these kind of actions, caring and providing for the poor and vulnerable, these were the actions Jesus was calling his listeners to. But Jesus was certainly doing more than just calling people to care for the poor. Jesus, the shepherd king, was himself identifying with them, right? Just as you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. Jesus was saying he was there, hidden in the hungry child, in the thirsty old man, in the stranger needing welcome, and the prisoner needing provision. He started his teaching ministry in Matthew, blessing the poor in the Beatitudes, and now he ends it saying, I'm with them. I am in them. Remember, his audience, for the bulk of his peasant working class audience, this is good news. Amen? To those who knew what it felt like to be hungry, Jesus said, I'm with you. To those who need a drink, Jesus said, I'm with you. And if there was any doubt that this solidarity with the oppressed was more than just words, Jesus would soon make that clear because just a few verses later, Jesus would be the one arrested. He would be the one imprisoned. He would be alone without any visitors. He would be the one hungry, the one without clothing, the one who said from the cross, I thirst. Friends, this is where I believe Jesus is trying to focus his audience. He's using the framing of a future event to do it, yes, but that is not the heart of his message. The actions Jesus is trying to provoke are very much focused on the here and now. Who are the vulnerable among you today? What can you do to care for them today? So I want to end with a few core takeaways from, for us from our passage as we wrap this series on activated faith, considering what Jesus might want to activate in us. My first takeaway from this parable is to recognize that all of us are capable of missing Jesus. All of us are capable of missing Jesus. In the parable, neither the sheep nor any of the goats saw the Son of Man in their midst. Both groups were surprised to hear he had been there. And this should be a reminder to all of us not to be overly confident in our own capacity to discern the presence of the divine. All of us are capable of missing Jesus. We might be too caught up in the everyday pressures of life, the real concerns we're all managing. We might be distracted by all the messages competing for our attention. Whatever the reason, I think this story invites us to at least ponder how, like the sheep and the goats, we might miss noticing the divine's presence in our midst. 
the good news is, this story also makes clear that the sheep didn't need to discern the divine presence in order to do the right thing. They saw the humanity of the people in front of them, and they allowed their hearts to be moved by it. And in the same way, though we may not notice God showing up in any given encounter, we can attend to the human beings in front of us, right? We can hear their needs. We can allow ourselves to be moved. And in so doing, we just might be encountering something sacred. That brings me to another takeaway. Concern for Jesus means concern for the vulnerable. As we've named, Jesus goes beyond calling his followers to serve the needs of vulnerable and oppressed. He actively locates himself within them. Here at Haven, in places like our retreat recently, we've been having some more conversation around what exactly does it mean for us to be a community centering on Jesus. When we say we're Jesus-centered, what does that actually mean? I think that's a fair question and something we're going to continue to be discerning. But perhaps this is part of what it means. Perhaps part of what it means is that we are actively engaging our world in a way that's attending to where here and now is their vulnerability. Where is their hunger and thirst, both physically and emotionally? Where are their lonely, seeking invitation? While all of us are capable of missing Jesus, perhaps our call to be Jesus-centered invites us to attend to the places of oppression and vulnerability as the best pathways to discover the divine among us. So we're now over a month into a devastating conflict in Israel and Palestine one that already has included unfathomable destruction, trauma, and loss of life, with no clear end in sight. Compounding the grief we may feel is also the tension we may be drawn into in various groups we interact with, as they often, it feels like, call us to choose a side. Who are you with? Are you with Israel or Palestine? But I think the call of this story asks us to take a view that isn't at its core about national identity or tribal affiliation. If we ask, where is Jesus here? I think we're called to notice Jesus in multiple locations. So Jesus, I believe, is with the kidnapped hostages from Israel subjected to terror by Hamas, along with their families and other long loved ones who fear for their safety and long for their return. And Jesus is with the Palestinian child whose home has collapsed under Israeli rocket fire while they watched their little brother be crushed by the rubble. Jesus is with their parents fleeing for safety traumatized by the loss of a child desperate to find a safe place for the rest of their family. And Jesus is with the Israelis who've had to leave their kibbutz after they saw a hundred of their community members brutally massacred in front of them. And now they find themselves in a hotel miles away trying to set up a temporary school for their kids. Jesus is with that community of strangers seeking welcome 
and a space to collectively process their trauma. And Jesus is with the hungry and thirst in Palestine, thirsty in Palestine who can't get food or water because their access to basic life-sustaining essentials has been cut off by Israeli military. And Jesus is with the rabbi in the United States who's frightened to attend synagogue because of the increase of anti-Semitic threats recently reported. And Jesus is with the imam who's scared to lead Friday prayers at the mosque because they too have experienced threats to their spiritual community. I could go on and on. The headlines each day are filled with too many tragedies to name or even try to comprehend. Tragedies in Gaza, tragedies in Israel, tragedies in the connected communities around the world. Now we can and we should debate policy and imbalances of power and consider the impact of the generations of historic systemic trauma that have impacted both Palestinians and Israelis because those have gotten us to this moment and we cannot get out of it without dealing with them. But as we do so, we cannot ignore the cry of the hungry or the thirsty, the needs for welcome and refuge for so many who have now been forced to flee and become strangers. Perhaps to be Jesus-centered means centering our concerns where Jesus did, on meeting the practical needs of those around him and calling others to do the same. The final takeaway I'll offer is this. Our actions in the here and now, attending to the challenges in front of us, have impact beyond what we can see and experience. Our actions in the here and now have impact beyond what we can see and experience. However we understand divine judgment. At its heart, I believe the message is that evil will not have the final word. The divine is in the process of making all things new. The divine longs to wipe every tear from every eye. And each act that we do to wipe away the tears in front of us are a part of some sacred endeavor that's bigger than any of us. So our actions somehow have cosmic consequences. They are connected to that other realm, that, that eon, that life of the age, that eternal source where justice must rule. So we can participate here and now in the divine kingdom coming. A cup of water given to a thirsty soul has an eschatological impact. Amen? The act of mercy has ripples into the future. It's part of the future story. I'm going to end our time following up on my promise and giving the last words to A.J. Levine. So if you remember... We stepped away from her story when the televangelist was asking Peter why AJ was allowed to be there. And Peter went off to get some help. So we're going to end today by letting her finish her story, her own little parable of eschatology. And he comes back in just a few minutes with a fellow who's maybe about 5'4", five, 5'5", five, five, 
with dark, piercing eyes that look right into your soul and with holes in his palms, because as we know from the Gospel of John, the resurrected Jesus still bears the wounds of the cross. And Peter says, Lord, we have another one. Give this man credit of his convictions. He's going for it. He says, Lord, all my life I proclaimed you to be Savior. I've tried to bring people the gospel. I've tried to lead them to baptism. Are you telling me that I was wrong? And Jesus says, my son, I do appreciate your efforts. And no, you're not completely wrong. But if you flip back over to the Gospel of Matthew, which does come first in the canon, I make it very clear that it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of the Father, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting people in prison, giving a cup of water to the least of these. It seems to me that my daughter, AJ, has done the best she could with the talents that she has. And the fellow says, wait a minute, that's works righteousness. You're saying she's earned her way into heaven. Getting into heaven is supposed to be a free gift. And Jesus says, exactly so. Flip back over to the Gospel of John, where I make it very clear that I am the way. Let me repeat, I am, not you. And not your narrow way of reading scripture and not your narrow sense of salvation and grace. I say she gets in, do you want to argue? And the last thing I recall seeing before going off to get my heavenly accessories is Jesus handing the man a Kleenex to help get the log out of his eye. If the church wants to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, it should, because that's what the New Testament says. If the Christian wants to make Jesus the gatekeeper, that's fine with me too. Because the Jesus I know from history, the rabbi, the teacher, the member of the people of Israel, this first century Jew, would be infinitely more concerned with how I love my neighbor, and how I love the stranger, and how I love my God, than in the particulars of my theological belief. What finally can we say about Jesus? He cares about what we do. He insists that we show mercy and compassion to everyone. He's a fabulous Jewish teacher, and in the church, he's more than that. Thank you. And then we'll go into our discussion time. God, sometimes we have to confess that it feels like there are so many hungry, so many thirsty, so many without clothes or shelter or welcome. Too many in prison, too many sick. It can feel overwhelming. And yet we hear your call to the vulnerable among us, the vulnerable who are here in this space, all the ways we are showing up with vulnerability, all the ways we have needs and all of those in our community around us, and all of those across the globe. Would you continue to move our hearts, 
our minds, our spirits. Not to be overwhelmed and shut down, but to be present to the folks in front of us, to the needs in front of us, and to be moved like the sheep in your story to acts of mercy. May we encounter the sacred as we do. Amen. All right, friends, we're going to take about 10 minutes, as we always do, for discussion. I have a few questions that can uh, prompt the discussion, or um, you can talk about whatever you're feeling present to, but here are some potential prompts. How has your faith background influenced how you may have heard this future story before, and how might that feel different now? Um, have you had experiences of missing Jesus? What comes to mind for you in that? Or what does ident Jesus identifying with the least of these mean to you? So we'll talk about that for 10 minutes, and then we'll conclude in worship. Uh, so we'll break up into groups of, of four or five, and um, you're always welcome to just listen. You don't have to participate. Um, whatever's going to help you feel connected now. <laughs>